The following message is entitled, Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed. This message was given during the morning service on August 14, 2022, at the East Side Bible Church of Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon titled this morning is Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed. Since it's the middle Sunday of the month, we are back again to 1 Timothy with a short break from the middle Sunday's last month in July. 1 Timothy is a verse-by-verse study series that I am doing in the middle Sundays of the month, two or three Sundays each month in the morning. The title for the entire series I have given in the note sheet is The Kind of Church God Wants. And what we're looking at currently is the beginning introduction by Paul to his protege, Timothy, who is the pastor currently at this point in this epistle of the Ephesian church. And what this epistle, as well as the other two known as pastoral epistles do, is they teach us two major things, First and Second Timothy and Titus. They teach us the biblical priorities of a local church anywhere in the world, anytime, regardless of culture. These are not cultural issues. The church today tries to make how a church is to be run cultural. I've had more than a few minorities that have come in over the last 35 years and they did not like my preaching, expressed after the service that my preaching was white preaching. Um, This is not white preaching. Explaining the Bible from the pulpit is not white preaching. There are ethnicities that believe that that's the case, but to just stand and talk to you doesn't make me white, right? So there are obviously cultural aspects to preaching that have taken over various groups in our country, but that has nothing to do with the Bible. Um, Whether someone uses certain cultural, ethnic slang and terms is irrelevant. It depends not on the communication style, but on whether the word of God is exegeted. So, these three books, 1 Timothy, where we are in currently, deal with how a church is to operate regardless of culture, ethnicity, context, modern, past. It's, It's all God's eternal word not to be negated. That's one thing this is after. Secondly, uh, these pastoral epistles are trying to teach leadership, elder leadership. Remember that pastors are elders. Elders are pastors, according to 1 Peter 5. So uh, these are meant to teach the leadership of churches throughout the centuries, from Paul's time to today, how they are to lead and what their qualifications are. And a third aspect to this is how Christians are to behave as members or attenders in a local church and what their priorities are to be. So this is all about priorities for local churches, leaders, and Christians. In your note sheet, you can see the outline. We're in the first major priority. God wants true teachers and pure doctrine in our churches. That starts in verse 3 and goes all the way down to verse 20. The first chapter is dealing out of six chapters with the priority of True teachers, true teaching, and pure doctrine. If anything goes against the culture of evangelicalism today, that priority does. 
If you're going to follow biblical priorities for what a local church is to be, you're going to be going counter to evangelical priorities today, which obviously, as I've said many times, your average evangelical church is after something other than teaching and doctrine. Under that first priority in your note sheet, the church was founded by Christ and the apostles, and that's verses 1 and 2. Follow with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. The epistles written, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We did a study of God's true servant, the apostle Paul, in verse 1, in your note sheet, letter A. Secondly, we finished a study of the apostle's true servant, Pastor Timothy, in verse 2. And now we're looking at the powerhouse of any local church, which is brought up in verse 2 as well. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. These are not just introductory terms like what's happening, how's it going, good morning. This is the powerhouse of any local church, is believers who live by grace as they were saved by grace, believers who live by mercy as they were saved by mercy, and believers who live by grace and mercy then manifest peace. The first of those three, the first two of those three terms, grace and mercy, are the source of power. The source of power. The third term, peace, is the evidence of power. So when I'm living by grace and living by mercy, the power source is unleashed, and a major evidence that I am living under the power of God and growing is the third term, peace. We're currently in the second term, mercy, for another sermon today. In your note sheet then, next to the hourglass, the introduction, lessons from the hourglass of God's mercy, this continues. We've already seen um, three lessons and are in the middle of the fourth lesson of ten lessons I'm teaching you about sanctifying mercy or the hourglass mercy power that needs to be unleashed in a believer's life. Mercy is not just what God withheld from us, wrath. Mercy is a power conduit for the Holy Spirit, living in mercy as a believer. So that's what we're learning. Lesson number one in your note sheet that we've already seen, the hourglass mercy of mercy in Saul. We learned that there is no mercy for an apostate. Lesson number two, we looked at a person who was behaving similarly to Saul, Jehoshaphat, last month. We learned that the hourglass of mercy and in regards to Jehoshaphat, and it's listed there for you, there's no mercy for rebellious believers without repentance. We learned that. There must be repentance as a true believer for mercy power to activate. Lesson number three is where I explain for you what I mean by this term, our glass of mercy. Most Christians think mercy just is always, in all contexts, unconditional and can never be withdrawn for a believer. Not true. And what we learned in Lesson 3, and supported it scripturally, is in your note sheet. There is a time limit to God's mercy, and he doesn't tell us when that time limit has been achieved. That's his business, not ours. And Lesson 4, which we're in the middle of, that's why you now have blank lines to fill in some more things, but I've given you already the lesson four principle. We can tell when mercy has run out for a believer, in other words, by observing the evidences 
in a believer's life of rebellion. Now, mercy does run out for unbelievers also. The offer of mercy is always there. But just a reminder that for the lost, at some point, the Spirit no longer convicts of sin for an unbeliever, no longer convicts of hell when truth is continually resisted. I had an unbeliever many years ago who used to attend here in my office, and I've told you this story before. Uh, this is many years ago, and he was very frightened of hell because he'd had a dream about hell. So I said to him, I said, he said, I need, I think I need to get saved. This really terrified me. So knowing the individual, I said, well, let's, you know, we could do that, but let's talk about this for a little bit. So we did. And the further we talked, I realized that he was not worried about hell because the Bible talks about hell. He was worried about hell, the version that he had in his dream. And uh, I said to him, basically, many years ago, when you woke up in fear of hell, did you search the scriptures? And he said, no. So I said, well, let's give it a few days. And I, would, I don't usually do this when someone seems to want to come to faith in Christ, but I knew this person was not being legitimate. So I said, let's come back to my office in a few days. He said, okay. So a few days later, we made an appointment. He showed up at my office, and I sat down, and I said, are you still afraid of hell? And he went, oh, no, that's gone. That was just a dream. There you go. Dreams aren't what convict us of sin. It's the word of God. The fear of hell comes from the spirit through the word of God. So I said, do we have anything else to talk about? He goes, no. So that was it. Never came back again. So that's the hourglass of mercy for an unbeliever running out, where if you get the truth and you reject it. This is the major issue with apostates that are sitting in churches over the 2,000 years of the church, wheat and tares. They come in and they're never convicted of the word of God, never wanting to be saved, yet claim to and masquerade as believers, claiming to be born again. And the Bible makes it very plain that they have no hope of mercy, as was the case with Saul, lesson number one. So, lesson four, we can only tell when mercy's run out by observing the evidences. And, like I said, mercy can run out for an unbeliever, but lesson number four is in regards to believers. And this is where I wanted to continue this morning, looking at some aspects of rebellion. Because you can't get a voice from God that says, mercy has run out for you, Mr. or Mrs. Believer. I'm telling you right now, the bell is going off that my mercy is being withdrawn from you, believer. We're not talking about loss of salvation here, by the way. That mercy is unconditional when we got saved. We're talking about uh, God moving from helping to grow to intervening and chastising. So write that down under lesson four. Uh, mercy is withdrawn when chastisement begins. You say, well, isn't chastisement a form of God's love and mercy? Well, I guess we could say yes to that, but God doesn't want us under chastisement. There's no will of God in the New Testament that says God's will is for you to be chastised. You know, a ninth will of God, saves, suffering, submissive, serving, sanctified, sophied, and all the rest. And then number nine is God wants you to always be chastised. No, he does not. He wants us to grow into the word and not be chastised. So... Um, when we're talking about the running out of mercy for a believer, you should have written that down. We're talking about God moves from enablement to be holy to intervening with chastisement. The intervention of chastisement. And there's no, like I just said, there's no voice that says, uh, Hello, John, you're looking in the mirror. You're now looking at the face of a rebel. 
Now, God's not cluing you in as to whether you're under chastisement or not. So how would you know? The evidences. Um, the evidences show. There are things that he does to a Christian rebel that shows his mercy has run out. And there are some attitudes of rebels that show that God's mercy has run out. Did you hear that and did you understand? There are ways of thinking and living for a Christian rebel that show that if these are in my life, any one of them, by the way, that list I gave at the end of the sermon last month, I'm going to repeat. If any one of these things are in my life, I'm a rebel. And if I'm a rebel, mercies run out. And then from God's point of view, if I'm blind to these things, but some of these things are occurring that God is doing, even if I don't see rebellion because I'm blind, and one of the marks of a rebel is that they're blind to their own condition, but if I see these things in my life from God, then that's an evidence that I'm in rebellion and his mercies run out. So we have two ways of examining ourselves as Christians as we'll look again with some more verses to support what I taught from the Bible last month. There are two ways to tell if the hourglass of mercy, practically speaking, not eternally speaking, has run out for a true believer. Spiritual things that are in my life that shows I'm in rebellion. Divine evidences of chastisement that show that I'm in rebellion. Let me give you those combined. You may not have room to write all these, but you can either get the recording or come up to me for my notes. For $5, I'll give you page one. Evidences of chastisement from my own life or from God. Let's start with our own lives. How would I know that I'm in rebellion and thus the hourglass of mercy has run out and God is chastising? Moral confusion. Moral confusion. I'm confused about God's will. I'm confused about life. I'm confused about what God's doing. That's an evidence I'm in rebellion. Every single time. God is not an author of confusion. Satan is. So if I am in confusion about my whole spiritual condition, life, God's will, whatever, then I'm in rebellion. Number two, the private abandonment of the Bible. We talked extensively about this one. It's a great hidden sin of professed believers in the church today. But it doesn't say hidden for long. The way that you hide abandonment of the Bible is keep your mouth shut at church. If you don't want anyone to know that you've abandoned the Bible, you need to keep your mouth shut because as soon as you start discussing your perspectives of the Bible, if you've abandoned the Bible, you manifest incredible error and ignorance. And those are the evidences that a Christian have, has abandoned the Bible. Error and ignorance. That's rebellion. Number three, fear. The opposite of the third powerhouse virtue in chapter 1, verse 2. The opposite of peace is fear. Continual, consistent fear means I'm in rebellion. I'm not walking in grace. I'm not walking in mercy. Holy terror. Hebrews 10, we saw that. Not doubts about salvation, but outright terror that I'm not saved and I'm going to hell. Not from a dream, but because the Spirit is doing it to you. Moral confusion. Private abandonment of the Bible. Number two, fear. Number three, holy terror. Number four. Number five, growing anger. There are a lot of angry Christians at church. 
James 4 tells us that this is an evidence of out-of-control lust. I've had to say to individuals recently and in the past at church, why are you so angry? And if I say that to you, I've just declared that you're in rebellion. Okay? Out-of-control anger. Anger at what? Well, predominantly, when a person's in rebellion, they're angry at God first, but also angry at teaching. Bible teaching. They criticize everything. That's an evidence they're in rebellion. Moral confusion, private abandonment of the Bible, fear, holy terror, growing anger, especially over God and authority. Next, prayerlessness, private prayerless and public corporate prayerlessness. That's number six, I believe. Number seven, hardened towards sin. No self-examination, no repentance. The fatal error that a Christian rebel makes is this. If I feel no guilt, I'm not sinning. Every single time a Christian's in a rebellion, they come to that conclusion. Next is lying. Lying and deception. Lying about oneself, lying about God, lying about others, lying to God, to self, to others. It's incredible the level of lying. That's the mark of your old nature and mine is deception and lying. And when I'm out of control in rebellion in Ephesians 4, lying and deception take over. And uh, connected to the out-of-control anger I already mentioned would be another one out-of-control lust. There's no victory. Lust is just growing, especially in the six major areas that lust is said to manifest in the New Testament that we've talked about many times. And lastly, arrogance, growing pride and arrogance. What is the evidence, that's now from the rebellious side, what is the evidence that from God's point of view that mercy, the hourglass of mercy is drawing to a close and God is now chastising what I would call miraculously incurable illness. That's it. Miraculously incurable illness. You say, well, we have sins like cancer and so forth that are incurable. Some of them aren't curable. So what do you mean by that? No, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that comes on very rapidly, is perplexing, and it's progressive, and when the person goes to the doctor, they really don't know what's going on. This shouldn't be happening. It's not like a normal fallen condition where you have a tumor, you have cancer. It's like the doctor becomes perplexed, has no idea how this is going on or what this is. And usually what happens when a rebel goes to the doctor, the doctor starts thinking that the Christian rebel's a little out of the mind because there are these physical symptoms and problems that are progressive, but the doctor can't find them. And we know doctors love to declare, if I don't know what it is, it's because you're nuts. Isn't that incredible? How many doctors have thrown that one at us in the past? That basically is a basis for me quitting that doctor when they say that to me, is uh, maybe you need to see a psychologist because I don't know what it is. Oh, it couldn't be your ignorance, doctor. It's always, I'm a nut job. Okay, well, whatever. I just got off on a rant there, so let's get back to this. Let's uh, take a stroll through the New Testament on this. 1 Corinthians 5. I'm 
And basically, the rule I've had in my life, and you should have, is if you're in rebellion and you see any one of those character qualities I mentioned to you that maybe you wrote down a second time from last month, 1 Corinthians 5, here's the basic rule. If, if you or I have any one of those character qualities that I just listed there, that you wrote down, and at the same time have perplexing physical issues, you can pretty much bank on the physical issues are chastisement. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have the rebel here. Verse 1, reported that immorality is among you. And this is a rebellion that someone has his father's wife. So this is obviously has his father's life. 1 Corinthians 5.1. This is a Christian, a true Christian, who is living in sexual sin. Notice the arrogance that I mentioned in your list is in verse 2. But not in regards to the rebel, but in regards to the congregation. You is plural in verse 2. So the entire congregation of the Corinthians is made up of rebels predominantly. Incredible, isn't it? And have not mourned instead over sin, so hardened towards sin. The Corinthian church is hardened towards sin. So the evidence is, by the way, that a local church, and predominantly the whole church is in rebellion and is hardened against sin, is when they refuse from leadership on down to discipline a Christian rebel. Verse 2, so the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They were arrogant and not mourning over sin. So why should they discipline the individual? Paul carries out apostolic judgment in verse 3. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who's committed this. So there is a time when mercy ends. Do you see that in verse 3? Judgment is not eternal judgment. The man is a believer. In fact, he repents, it seems. And we read about that in the next epistle. But judgment there shows that God judges believers. And judgment is the opposite of mercy. Is this clear? Mercy can end for a believer if they're in rebellion. And what does Paul do? Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Notice the power is Christ, not Paul. Verse 4. The power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided, is not in the Greek. So Jesus is the one doing the delivering. Paul is not. Verse 5. The power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He's announcing it. He's declaring it. But it's God who does that. Notice then, verse 5. Rebellion. And there's no evidence it's unique just to this type of sin. As we'll see in a moment, death can occur for any rebellion because there's a whole other context coming up in a few chapters, where a whole host of the Corinthians are dying in rebellion. But in verse 5, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. How does a medical examination, tests, and surgery stop hands of Satan from killing? Can't. Right? Still a believer in verse 5, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. So this is not judgment that is eternal. It is sanctification or rebellion judgment. 
And they're boasting in verse 6. Unbelievable. Probably they're saying we're free in Christ to do whatever we want. Paul's a legalist. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. So you look at the list that I gave you of evidences of rebellion, which is not, you know, in totality, but it is sufficient enough. And you could say, wow, I've got one of those in my life, so I'm already in rebellion. Then you better start examining yourself physically. And if there is no physical satanic chastisement going on, we're not talking the encroachment of age and physical problems of the fallenness. We're talking miraculous, very quick moving on. of Why would Satan wait, by the way, if God gives him an opportunity to take out a Christian? I think he's going to wait a long time. Well, let's see now. God has just declared this Corinthian Christian. Paul has declared that Jesus is handing him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So now uh, Satan's going to wait until he's uh, 89 years old so that he could die from encroaching old age. Is that what Satan would do? He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He pounces, he attacks quickly. So we, the implication of 1 Corinthians 5 is God holds back Christ holds back Satan from murdering any of us. And um, so we're talking very rapidly moving in. You say, well, I've known a lot of rebels, John, in our church. And uh, I know a lot of people, family members that claim to be Christians and they're in rebellion. They're not being quickly taken down by Satan, so you must be wrong. I, I must be wrong? This is about me? This is axiomatic. If you are in rebellion and don't repent, the hourglass of mercy will run out. You will be handed over to Satan and he will quickly murder you. So why hasn't God murdered all these, or Satan murdered all these rebels we've had in our church? They're not saved. Why would Satan take out one of his emissaries who infiltrates the church to wreak destruction called apostates. He's not a fool. The more fake believers he can get in a church, the more he, they wreak havoc. An apostate's already in the camp of God. God only chastises his children, according to Hebrews 12. So we're talking a massive group of professed believers that have walked through the doors of this church and currently still some in it who are living for Satan and aren't under chastisement. Quick, rapid murdering from Satan. That's the tell. That's a big tell. That many, most, who claim to be rebellious Christians are actually unsaved apostates. And then this 1 Corinthians 11 one pops up. This is a really, really interesting one. It's scary. 1 Corinthians 11 is the instruction from Paul in verse 26 about partaking of the Lord's table. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I had somebody years ago in this church who was a rank legalist, very upset when we didn't have communion on one of the first Sundays of the month. Um, I think we missed it a couple months ago. The elders couldn't do it, and I wasn't here or whatever. I don't even remember. Oh, that's sin. That's, that's not sin. There's no rule that says we have to have communion on the first Sunday of the month. It's not a sin if we miss it for some extenuating circumstantial reason. Are we clear on that? So it's not something to freak out about. That's just, what's going on here? We don't have any communion today. Okay, we'll look at verse 26. As often as you eat this, 
There's no apostolic rule that we have to do it at any time. In, in once a month, once every Sunday, once a year, there's no rule. We set up these rules and then we stand with our holy conviction. Okay? But we are to do communion in verse 26 until the Lord returns at the rapture for us. Now, he gets into believers, verse 27, therefore whoever eats, whoever, that's any believer he's referring to, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So whenever we do it, if we're eating in an unworthy manner, that's a major death sentence right there. How do we know? We'll look at verse 28. Man must examine himself. You say, well, how do we know they're believers? It just says a man. Well, the Bible never tells believer, unbelievers to partake of communion and never says if they examine themselves they can properly repent as unbelievers. You can't repent as an unbeliever until you're saved or in the process of getting saved. And then also the last word of verse 30 is a euphemism for only for Christian death, sleep. So the man of verse 28 is a believer. We are called, every one of us, a man, generic, verse 28, any believer must dokimazo, it's a present imperative, must judge ourselves, look to the mind and the life, and what is he supposed to do when he judges himself? He's supposed to repent. That's what, it's, judging yourself is to reveal sin so that you can repent. That's why every communion, we say you must examine yourself to make sure that you're saved and that you've dealt with all sin. He examines himself, the implication is, always with judgment, is that it will bring about uh, repentance. In so doing, he can then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, verse 29, brings judgment. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body, the body is just referring, obviously, to the Christian's life. Okay. For this reason, many among you, because they're not judging rightly, are weak, sick, and a number sleep. There's the rapid, satanic, murdering progression for rebellion. Weak, sick, and a number sleep. Now, this is an astounding tell on a congregation, including ours. We have had communion almost every first Sunday of the month since I've been here for 35 years, and I think back to all the godless and rebellious believers, professed believers, who have come through this church and left or died, and they just, month after month, took communion, and nothing ever happened to them. And currently going on, professed believers in our church who take communion, and they're in rebellion. You say, well, what's rebellion? I gave you the list. Just look at it. So look at that list again. Moral confusion, private abandonment of the Bible, fear, holy terror, growing rage and anger against authority, teaching, prayerlessness privately, and no public prayer going on for the person. They abandon prayer meetings. Hardened towards sin, not repentant. Living lies and deception, out of control, lust, arrogant. Imagine if any one of those unrepented sins are in your life, anyone here present in the auditorium, and you've been taking communion... And nothing ever happens to you if just one of those things that you listed down there for rebellion. It doesn't take ten things to be a rebel. You do understand that, right? One sin can make us a rebel, right? So 
Examine your own life. If any one of those are there and you just have not been repenting of it, and yet you partake of communion and nothing has happened to you, like all the hundreds that have come through here, communion is a major public tell that a person who's in rebellion, I could sit up here if I wanted to during communion, and I could just go like this. Who's taking communion today? Raise up your cup and your bread. And in my mind, oh wow. Rebel, 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 whatever. There they go, down the hatch. Why are they not dead? Huh? No. Not mercy. They're apostates. Remember, rebellion, mercy ends. A rebel, mercy's ended. They've moved into chastisement. They're not dead because they're apostates. Every rebellious believer falls into verse 30. Weak, sick, sleep. That's a progression. I have this unexplainable bodily weakness and, and I just, I'm feeling sick. I think I'm dying. You are, if you're a rebel. We're not talking about encroaching old age. We're not talking about a known medical condition that can be diagnosed. This is one-for-one one correlation. Rebellion brings satanic movement quick. I've run into more than a few believers in our church in the past as well that think this is just hocus-pocus. Oh, you know, come on, Satan doesn't do this stuff. And Yeah, yeah, I know they're demons, but, you know, demon possession. Like, I sent that text out a few weeks ago about the guy across the street, the demon-possessed situation. I've known Christians who, in their privacy of their heart over the past years, laugh at that. Like, that's the biggest joke. I can't believe Pastor John would really... That, that's not really going on today. Oh, maybe, maybe in darkest Africa. But come on, John, there isn't really any demon possession. That's just a mark of an apostate and an unbeliever. Demonic forces are everywhere. We just saw Satan directly taking on this guy back in 1 Corinthians 5, being handed over. He must have repented quickly. What probably happened was um, Paul's letter was read with the guy sitting there in the Corinthian congregation. And he was a true believer. He was like scared out of his wits and he repented. Because we know later on when Paul writes, as I just mentioned, for 2 Corinthians, that the guy repented. And so did the church. See? This happens fast. The hourglass of rebellion runs out the minute we're in rebellion and Satan moves fast to execute. I've said many times to individuals over the years who've at least given me a forum for confronting their sin, standard line every single time, whether one-to-one -one admonishment or in counseling, I'll say this, why aren't you dead? This is the consequence of not dealing with sin. Now, wouldn't you think an apostate, if they hear that, would wake up? No, they don't wake up. Apostates don't. And we're not talking about apostates here. We're talking about true believers in verse 30. So verse 31, if we judge ourselves rightly, 
we would not be judged. And what is the judgment? Back in verse 30, wick seek, sick, and sleep. That's the judgment from God. It's not hell. It's wick, weak, sick, sleep. That's the judgment, verse 31, that he's referring to. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The discipline is meant to restore to righteousness, to bring repentance. That's why if a rebel takes communion and they're now completely waylaid with those three steps of death in verse 30, they are now satanically terminal. A true believer is terrified already, having lost their assurance of salvation. I repent! I repent! They'll hold back from taking communion. Now I've had a few individuals, one who is long since died and that person told me, well, I just, I just never know. I'm too holy to take communion. Um, just never quite know if I've dealt with all my sins. So I don't want to have to deal with this type of execution. So I just bypass it. So this is, this is saying, basically, as a believer, I refuse to commemorate the death of my Savior publicly in communion. That's a form of apostasy. Solution for this isn't to avoid communion. That's just another declaration of rebellion. There are two major ordinances every believer must partake of in the New Testament. Water baptism after conversion and once saved, communion. And to renounce either one of those is to declare oneself as a false believer. There are things you just can't bypass and still have wiggle room to claim to be saved. You can't say I'll never be baptized and you can't say I'll never take communion so I don't get zapped in verse 30. That's what this person did, told me. And I said, well, then you're in rebellion because you refused to partake of communion. But the person was an apostate, so it didn't mean anything to them anyways. See, the discipline in verse 32 is meant to restore. So, verse 30 has a glimmer of hope. I don't know if you can see the hope in verse 30. Let's just say... We'll just pick any one of these character qualities of a rebel. Well, I've been arrogant for the last three weeks. Boom, dead. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been out of control lust. Boom, dead. Now, what's, what's the hope in verse 30? There is a staging progression by God. So it is not just that Satan moves in, boom, dead. It's that Satan is being held back to first unleash weakness, then unleash sickness, then unleash sleep. Why is that a glimmer of hope? Even in rebellion, even under satanic, miraculous murdering, God is allowing it to progress at his sovereign timetable to give an opportunity for repentance. 1 Corinthians 15 A true believer in rebellion, if they were here in this auditorium, would be terrified out of their minds right now in such panic that they would almost could hardly contain themselves and stay in the pew. This doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because of verse 13, 33, excuse me, of 1 Corinthians 15. Deception. Stop being deceived. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. There's, a, there's another aspect of rebellion, getting bad company, bad association. Bad counsel from individuals who don't know the word of God. I've had this happen many times as well in my experience. Someone comes for counseling, well, I don't like your counseling, so I'll go somewhere else. Sir, just jump around to various counselors. The issue here is not the number of counselors. It's in verse 33, the company that we keep. And it's not referring to you ride the train with an unbeliever or go to a restaurant. We're talking about uh, hanging around somebody enough that their evil corrupts you whether by their advice or by their lifestyle. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. That's a warning there. This is an evidence that the hourglass of mercy can run out. We better stop sinning. That doesn't mean the, the ending of your sin nature. We're talking about the areas that are, have been corrupted in verse 33, rebellious areas I'm not repenting of. And then he gives another example. For some have no knowledge of God. That's a major evidence of rebellion. Didn't I tell you early on in the sermon when you were listing the evidences of rebellion in one's life, the private abandonment of the Bible, and it, was, it would be marked by ignorance and error? Remember that early in the sermon? There it is right in verse 34. Some of you have no knowledge of God. That's shameful. How can somebody be ignorant of the Bible for year after year after year? Rebellion or apostasy. See? No knowledge of God means I have no idea what the Bible's talking about. Hmm. These are evidences of warnings that the uh, mercy can run out. Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Here's the arrogance in verse 3, the last one I gave you. A real mark of, of arrogance is a real mark of rebellion. Galatians 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks he's something... When he is nothing, that's nadon, that's nothing. You're, you're, you and I are absolutely nothing as believers. He's talking to believers, brethren. First word of verse 1, Galatians 6.3. So when we're arrogant in verse 3, then we deceive ourselves. That's lying. That was one of the marks of rebellion. Look at this progression here. Verse 4. But each one must examine his own work. See, there it is again. Self-examination in order to declare repentance. And then he will have reason for boasting in regards to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. He's referring to sin. Little load, small load is what the word bear. Bear his own load, little load. For the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. Verse 7, God is not mocked. Deception means we're mocking God. If we're deceiving ourselves... We're, we're, we're trying to deceive others. We are mocking God. This is very serious. For what a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, continuously to his own flesh, that's the sin nature there in verse 8, will from the flesh reap corruption. That's literally rottenness in the Greek. Decaying matter. No farmer harvests a field of decay. Okay, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So continuously sowing to the flesh is an evidence that one is an unbeliever. One can do it for a time as a believer. This is an individual back at verse 3 who deceives himself. Frenapateo, it means to deceive the mind, to be warped in reality in the way one is thinking. 
it's really incredible. As the rebellious mind gets worse in its thinking, it becomes more arrogant and trusts its mind more. I know what I believe. While they have no knowledge, they're living in error and they're deceived. Literally, it means to believe a fantasy about oneself at the end of verse 3. Isn't that incredible? Arrogance produces fantasizing about oneself that we're okay. It's an astounding condition to be in. How else could such a rebel be awakened but other than by divine chastisement, right? I mean, you think somebody who is, thinks that there's something in verse 3 as a believer and completely arrogant, unteachable, and is fantasizing that they're okay in their minds, how could a sermon ever impact that? It doesn't. That's why you see rebellion being chastised by God. Have you ever noticed that throughout the New Testament? Rebels are given over to God. Rebels die. They're chastised. Why? It doesn't, you can't find anywhere that says, gather up all these rebels in the church and counsel and sermonize them and they will change. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that. Yet we front load the church. All these young Christians running to Bible schools and seminary because, and they're dumping pastoral ministry, the men, and preaching, and they're running to be counselors. Because counseling is secure. It's inherent legalism. Let me tell you something. Prayer is more powerful than counseling. I'm at the, you know, the journey's end of counseling for 35 years, and I have found that prayer is where the power is. My counseling, there's very little change that occurs. You just can't find it in the New Testament. Let's all become counselors. And when we admonish and give them homework, they will change. doesn't happen. Rebels don't change that way. How do rebels change? They're the true believers. God whacks them unto death. That's the only thing that wakes up a rebel heart. If you're a rebel here today, this sermon is absolutely pointless for you. You have an appointment with Satan to take you down. And it's staged, but it's rapid. And only Satan, working under the auspices of God, can bring about change. Isn't it ironic, by the way, Satan is, is so wanting to murder a believer that he doesn't realize he could very potentially be used by God to bring about revival in that rebel. Yeah. That's a whole other issue. So let's reaffirm the wreckage here. Verse 3, he deceives himself. Verse 7, do not be deceived. Same Greek word as 1 Timothy 4.1, by the way, where faith is renounced and false doctrine is partaken of. Same thing over there in 1 Timothy 4.1, the same kind of deception, which also includes food law legalism, by the way, in 1 Timothy 4.1. Heresy, food law legalism, and a messed up view of marriage all get dumped into this quagmire of filth that has an umbrella concept of deceiving oneself. That's why this believer is in a state of total spiritual corruption and collapse in verse 8. And the simple thing that cures it is a true repentance. But this person is arrogant. They can't repent in verse 3 because they are lying to themselves. Just a couple more. I won't spend as much time. Let's just lightning the rest of these. Ephesians 4, verse 22 as fast as you may get there, I'll be done with it. Uh, notice Ephesians 4.22 that um, 
you're to lay aside the old self, that's your sin nature, which is being continuously corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. You know this verse. It's a famous one for how your sin nature operates. You're to continuously renounce it. Laying aside is another one of the many terms for repentance in the New Testament. You have to continuously renounce it because you're continuously being corrupted by your own sin nature. It doesn't go away when you get older. Well, I've been saved 45 years. I don't have a problem with sin anymore. That's because you're dead spiritually if you ever say that. The battle never ends until we're in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5. To the right. To the right. Keep going. 1 Thessalonians 5. Rebellion quenches the power of the spirit. You say, well... Okay, wait a minute. A rebel has the Spirit of God, right? Yes, a true believer who's a rebel has the Spirit of God. Why does the Spirit just convict? Why did Paul back in 1 Corinthians 5 hand him over to Satan? Why not just the Spirit do the convicting then? That's not how he operates. He operates according to rules. God is immutable. Did you know that? You know what immutable means? He doesn't change. He doesn't grant exceptions to his rules. They operate exactly always the way he's going to operate. A rebel is not going to be convicted by the Spirit. He will be handed over to Satan. And why is the rebel not convicted? Because of verse 19. Verse Thessalonians 5, 19. Because they've quenched the Spirit. This is the guy back in verse 14 who is unruly. And notice, by the way, we're still to admonish them. He said, well, counseling doesn't do any good. Why do you do it? Because we're called to do things whether it works or not. Everything in the Christian life we're to do, whether we think it works or not. We're to evangelize whether they get saved or not. So I counsel anyways, and I admonish, like in verse 14. And notice again, they have an axe to grind, an angry axe to grind against teaching in verse 20. They always do. Rebels hate teaching. Hate it. Can't stand this anymore. Why do I have to put up with this? That's a rebel. But verse 19 is why. The Spirit, here's the rule. When you're a rebel, the Spirit walks away from influencing your heart. Quenched. He's ticked off, and he's going to go silent. And Jesus Christ then brings Satan in. So here's how it works. You're a growing Christian. Look up here. Growing Christian, convicted, guilt, convicted, guilt, repentance. You stop doing that. You lose the ability to feel guilt. Now what is happening is the spirit is doused. He is making a sovereign, divine decision. He's not going to convict you anymore. He steps back in verse 19. And in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Jesus Christ calls Satan onto the scene to devastate unto death this rebel. And then the sovereign spirit examines the heart. And if in the middle of the weak, sick, sleep stages of satanic murder if the spirit sees the person repenting then he moves back in and convicts under repentance that's how it works spirit backs off satan moves in boom and what if the person doesn't repent after all this murderous chastisement from satan then god just lets the person be murdered and dies <coughs> yes it happens very rare though I've never seen that in my life as a Christian. I've never seen a professed believer who was in rebellion murdered by Satan. Well, I guess it doesn't happen. And No, I've never really seen a backslidden believer. I don't know that I've ever really seen one. Maybe I have. I don't know. I can't follow all the rebels that have left here to see what's happened in their lives. <coughs> James 4. If I can still talk, this is the blood pressure medicine that does this to me. Because I didn't have this, I started the blood pressure medicine. It's one of the side effects. It creates a dry tickle in my throat. James, it's not a water issue. Uh, James 4. Um, 
This just shows <coughs> that the uh, rebel is just lusting like crazy in verse 2. They're fighters and angry in verse 1. And God is really ticked at them. In verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know the friendship of the world is hostility towards God? Whoever who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God becomes your enemy. That's the end of mercy. Right there at the end of verse 4. A rebel becomes an enemy of their Savior. Chapter 5. And yes, death occurs. Chapter 5 tells us. Verse 14. It isn't just for messing with communion or adultery back in 1 Corinthians 5. Those are just unique, John. No, they aren't. James 5 tells us this is, this is broad-based. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they will pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And since, third class condition, if since he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. He's repented. The sickness of verse 14 is meant to bring repentance at the end of verse 15, and that's why verse 16 says, you better be confessing your sins. And the fact that he was healed and will be healed and restored shows it's not a medical condition. It's satanic attack. What sins? Verse 15. And since he has committed sins, unknown, any sin becomes rebellion. Any sin. And lastly, Hebrews 10. <sighs> Hebrews 10, I thought we'd go liberal just for one last reference and go back to the left. Hebrews 10 if we go on sinning willfully, verse 26, willful sin, what do you get from God? Holy terror, one of the symptoms you wrote down, verse 27, terrifying expectation of judgment. I've had people look at me with sleepy eyes. I've confronted them. I said, aren't you afraid of God living in rebellion? They go like this. Unbeliever. Not unbelievable. Unbeliever. Every single time, if we go on sinning willfully. Don't we all sin willfully? Yes, but we don't go on. We repent. The longer you live as a Christian, it's very rare for you to sin a sin you didn't know was a sin. Most times, we as growing Christians, almost always, we sin willfully in, in that we know it's a sin and we are willing to do it or think it. The, the defining issue in verse 26 is go on Go on sinning willfully. It's this dirt of progressive, never repenting. And God slams the person with holy terror, verse 27. This is in verse 35. It's called throwing away your assurance. We throw away our assurance by sinning willfully over and over again with no repentance. There you go. That's lesson four. Now we're going to, next Sunday morning, back it all up in Lesson 5 and take another little reminder look at the nature of mercy, understand it in a deeper way. We also need to know Lesson 6, when is mercy unconditional? And Lesson 7 is, when is mercy conditional? Verse 8, isn't sympathy, this, or lesson 8, isn't sympathy the same as excusing sin? Most rebels believe that. Certainly God does not ever teach that. So next time, 
Foundations of Mercy, Lesson 5, Lesson 6, When is Mercy Unconditional, Lesson 7, When is it Conditional, Lesson 8, Let's Not Confuse Divine Love and Sympathy with Excusing Sin, Lesson 9, How Exactly Does Loving Mercy Sanctify Me? That's one that most Christians don't understand. How does just rejoicing in mercy make me more holy? And then lesson number 10 is what it means that when I am living in mercy, um, what would be a big evidence of that? There's a major evidence I'm living in mercy and growing, and it's how we treat other believers. Very important lesson 10. Thank you, Father, for... Mercy, power unleashed, and these hourglass lessons that we are learning about mercy. May we be biblically minded, self-examining, and where it is needed today, afflicted with great guilt. In Jesus' name, amen.